In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. And welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. We are going to talk some hockey today, but not right away because we've got some much bigger things going on in the world, and we definitely want to address all of that first. Prashant, why don't you uh, lead us in? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious by this point that, you know, all across the United States, uh, people are up in, in arms, they're protesting, there are, you know, riots going on, and it's it's all kind of tied back to, you know, what unfortunately unfolded on, on social media, which is we, we literally saw the police murder a black gentleman on social media, and, and you saw that play out, and, and people are, you know, for the most part, very much outraged in terms of how this has continued to play out, and and I just wanted to highlight a, a couple of big things from, you know, sort of a minority perspective, but also just by trying to listen to others as, as they've talked about the situation, those that know much more, those that are kind of have been advocates for a really long time and listening to black people talk about a lot of what they, they face on a day to day basis. And I wanted to share that with you because as, you know, for hockey, like it or not, the sport is largely a, a white sport, and that's often derived in the fact that the sport is, uh, by nature, an expensive sport to get into from a young age. You've got all the equipment, the sticks, the travel, the the money that goes into it, and, and by you know the way that the landscape has played out in America and Canada for uh, based on institutions that have been in place for hundreds of years, it's resulted in this dis- kind of proportionate wealth distribution that's resulted in kind of a trickle-down effect all the way into your sports. And so, you know, for more than 400 years, how you experience life has been dictated by the color of your skin. You know, your access to opportunities, networks, resources, ability to play sports like hockey, it's all been dictated by the color of your skin. And, And for some people, that may seem a little bit shocking. It may be something you've never thought about. And a lot of that is rooted in what we call or refer to as white privilege. And that, that term often gets people very upset because, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask for this. I didn't, 
you know, I'm not apologizing for this. And, and that's that's fine. That's not the point. The point is not asking anyone to apologize for the circumstances that have been gifted to you simply by the color of your skin. It's to it's to use that, use that privilege, use that circumstance to help amplify those that haven't necessarily been given, you know, that same opportunity. And and like I said, you know, we watched George Floyd have a knee put on his neck for eight minutes. The guy had his hands behind his back. He was allegedly being investigated for using a counterfeit $20 bill and has his knee put on his neck for eight minutes. And you watched in that video as he says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And even after he stops responding, three more minutes go by and that knee is still on his neck. And and that's an experience that's just not simply happening outside of the black community. That's an experience you don't see. You just, just last month, you have people armed to the teeth with assault rifles, other weapons, protesting, spitting in the faces of cops on the Capitol steps. Not so much as a drop of tear gas is spilled. You've got, you know, people going out and venting that they can't get a haircut, venting that they can't, you know, go buy lawn products when it's 32 degrees outside in Michigan and, and not so much as a drop of tear gas is spilled, not so much as a drop of pepper spray is sprayed. None of that happens. But in, in, in these situations, you're just seeing the disproportionate response, uh, when it comes to, you know, our black friends and family. I mean, just think about some of the events over the last few years. You know, the, you can't go for a jog or you might end up like Ahmaud Arbery. You can't watch birds where you might have a white woman threaten to use her privilege and call the cops on you saying that you're threatening her. Uh, and that you're threatening her life. Uh, you can't relax at home. Just be by yourself. Or you might have the cops break into your home by accident and shoot you eight times while you sleep, sleep in your bed like Breonna Taylor. Uh, you can't lawfully carry a weapon in your own vehicle like Philando Castile. He's pulled over. He tells the cops that, hey, just so you know, I have a weapon on me. They ask him for his license. The cop panics when he reaches for his license and shoots him seven times on social media, but is let go. You can't sell CDs on the side of the street, or you might end up like Alton Sterling, and you can't be a 12-year-old kid playing with a toy gun in the park, or you might get shot by, like, Tamir Rice. And so the the way that this happens and plays out in the black community is so vastly different uh, than what is experienced in the white community that the natural reaction is, well, there must have been something else to that story. He, they must have done something. And, and that lies, that's really the problem with the privilege because it's, it's unfathomable that that end result could happen without them doing anything additional. Like something must have happened to provoke that, that reaction. Something must have been said. Something must have been done. When in reality, this is what's happening without any of that extra provocation. And that's unfathomable for people who just don't experience that in their community. And that's what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. It's not here to tell you that other lives don't matter. It's saying that black lives should matter just as much as everybody else. Black lives matter too, if that's another way you want to think about it. It's a movement that's trying to dismantle that systematic racism and oppression that's been in place for hundreds of years since the existence of this country. And, you know, for years it was protested in peaceful manners. In the 1960s, there were sit-ins. Those people were pelted with slurs. They were hit with fire hoses 
and you still got Selma Bloody Sunday. You know, several years back, you have Colin Kaepernick take a knee on the field during the national anthem as a sign of his protest for police brutality. What happens from that? Well, you have the NFL institute a policy to find players for kneeling. He gets called a son of a bitch by the president of the United States. And ultimately, he's blackballed from the NFL simply for taking a knee during the national anthem. And so now you have people, they're upset. They're enraged. This has been going on for hundreds of years. And basically, members of the community are being murdered and treated differently simply because of the color of their skin. And so it's not on us to tell these people how to react, how to protest, how to respond to this. They're not going to do it in a manner that fits what everyone else wants to see because, number one, that's already been done, and number two, it's fallen on deaf ears. And so I think what it's really important for all of us to do in this moment in time is we don't have the safe spaces to retreat to. I think in years past, the reason why this has gotten so much bigger is people could retreat to safe spaces. You could hide within sports. You could hide within areas where this didn't penetrate. And you could basically live in willful willful ignorance of what was going on. But with the coronavirus epidemic, everyone's stuck at home. Sports are not on right now. This is what we have. And so let's use this moment, the reality of the moment, to get uncomfortable face what we're dealing with at this point and stand up and be better allies. You know, listen to the members of the black community who have talked about uh, all of this. There's a great list of ways you can learn how to be an ally from Jeshvina Shah, who's at Ice Hockey Stick. Uh, there's a number of different opportunities to learn more. There's a Instagram live uh, video that's being done with the Black Girl Hockey Club on Thursday, June 4th at 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Give yourself the opportunity to learn. Uh, I think right now the best thing all of us can do um, is to, one, shut up and listen, and two, figure out how we can be better allies moving forward so that this does not have to continue happening uh, like it has happened for the last 100-plus years. I certainly agree. I think that's very well said, and I also will say that, you know, the likelihood that any one statement, uh, especially on social media from a team or a brand was ever going to capture all of that, admittedly slim, but let's go ahead and get right into the Red Wing statement on all of this, because I think prior to it being released, they were already in the heavy minority teams to have not released a statement yet as of this morning. And then when they did, uh, quite a bit of dissatisfaction immediately, and I think very well justified dissatisfaction. Uh, it was clearly a coordinated post with the Tigers, the other team owned by the Illiches, posted the same kind of statement and graphic at the same time. I believe it was about 1 p.m. It read, we stand for equality, justice, and respect for all. We believe in diversity and inclusion and condemn hatred, racism, prejudice, and violence. Working together, we can drive meaningful, lasting, positive change. Uh, I think people are right here that this was woefully inadequate. I mean, you have nightly protests in your city happening right now to say nothing of the entire nation, essentially. And the best you can come up with is a vague condemnation of things like racism, prejudice and violence at large. Nothing specific about black Americans. No mention of George Floyd himself. Nothing specific to state violence and a broad call 
obviously to work together for meaningful change. Kind of hard to buy when you cannot muster a meaningful Twitter post. I, you know, again, I get that these are difficult topics for brands and teams to tackle on Twitter, which is inherently something that is, you know, best utilized for small, concise thoughts. And this is a very big topic, but you cannot let them off the hook that easily because the Tampa Bay Rays are also a sports team and they did a way better job at this. They released a long, pointed, specific post, not overly you know, it's it's like eight paragraphs, and in those eight paragraphs, they did worlds more. They pledged a hundred thousand dollars a year to supporting causes uh, that will fight systemic racism, and so it can it can be done. A hundred grand for a billionaire is still just a bad weekend at Motor City Casino, if you want, but it's a hell of a lot more than what the Illiches accomplished, the, the or the teams owned by the Illiches accomplished in these posts. Like Dylan Larkin did a lot better on his own on Instagram. Just by posting that he stands with the black community today and every day, he had a longer post than this. But at least he was specific in what he's talking about here. I mean, racism, injustice, these are obvious things that that are so agreeable to condemn so as to barely mean anything. To me, this is botched by both teams. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, hockey's race gap and, and the, the part money plays in it. This is the other part of that equation, even beyond money, beyond wealth, beyond the cost. How can hockey expect to not have a race problem, whether that be overt racist incidents and slurs or just a general gap in, in the demographics that play the game, the general lack of black hockey players in the NHL and at lower levels, when teams and players are going to shy away from the substance of topics that are of literal life and death importance to black Americans, this is a big problem for the entire sport. And I think the Red Wings missed the mark. I think in a lot of ways, other than specific players who several players I have been very impressed with their individual responses to this uh, around the league, I think a lot of NHL teams uh, are really, really missing the mark in their response to all of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And it goes back to one of the things I was stating earlier where, you know, for years and years and years, the reason why this problem keeps perpetuating, why this cycle keeps happening is because of willful ignorance. What we can say is, you know, in a predominantly white sport, in a predominantly white community, if I don't talk about it and if I don't look at it, I don't have to see it. And then I can continue on it dies down and I continue on with my life. And so that's why this is the moment. You have stripped away a lot of the aspects of society uh, right now by by virtue of necessity for the coronavirus pandemic. And we are not even going to get into the fact that African-Americans have, again, disproportionately been affected by the coronavirus pandemic relative to other races, again, as a part of this systemic, you know, infrastructure that's put, uh, you know, certain things into place that's allowed that to happen. But all that being said, this is the perfect opportunity to step out of that willful ignorance, to step out of that safe space, uh, the zone, the fingers in your ears, and to make a statement and act on it. And ultimately, statements are only good as statements if it doesn't ultimately result in an action. And that's why, you know, Max, you calling out the Tampa Bay Rays statement as a great statement. But the fact that they're, they had actions in there, $100,000, a year to, to actually build a better community. That's ultimately what, what you want to see. And for the Red Wings to fall short of that with kind of a word salad of buzz terms, uh, is just very disappointing. 
And by no means are they the only team that that struggled here. No, right. Uh, a for lot sure. of teams dropped the ball here. And to be quite honest, I've been far more impressed with the players. Jonathan Taves delivered a great, you know, you know, uh, message in his post. I think Tyler Sagan had a great message in his post. I think Steven Stamkos has had a great message in their post. And ultimately, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a trickle down effect from the top, from the best players, from the top of the organization, all the way down to empower everyone to speak up. Why don't you hear the stories of Akeem Alou more often? Because he's afraid to speak up because now he's out of the NHL. It's the same thing with Colin Kaepernick. He takes a knee on the field. He's out of the NFL. You need the support of everyone verbally, vocally. This can't be private because you need to create an environment that allows these players to be safe. And I think a lot of these statements have simply fallen short of that. The Red Wings one is you know, quite frankly, woefully inadequate on this front. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what you need to see how to hear is actions that build upon these statements. This wasn't just another social media trend, a blackout Tuesday that everyone needed to follow. This is something that you need to learn from, grow from, and act on. And so I'm going to judge this statement more down the road based on how the team, the organization, and the city work together to make a better and more equal community. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, especially on topics of privilege, conversations of privilege, they get difficult because I, I think it's really easy to get defensive. And you know, I'm a I'm a white guy, and, you know, I, the, the concept of having privilege does not mean everything in my life has been the easiest thing in the world that's not what privilege is about. And if, if you reduce it to that, then I think I, you can see how, you know, difficult conversations or really reckoning with what particularly black Americans face. And especially when it comes to, uh, to violence from, you know, police brutality, because if, if you shut the conversation down, the second you, you, you take it to mean your life hasn't been hard, you're not going to get anywhere, but it's also, that's a huge impediment to progress. So being willing to engage with something that, you know, you have not experienced is difficult, especially when, you know, when you approach it from a way uh, that is driven by what you've experienced and not about what the person who is talking to you or the group of people who are talking to you or just what the world is witnessing at a given moment. If you try to approach it through that lens, you're just not going to get very far. Right. And I, I completely agree. And that's why it's so important, um, you know, for me to just reiterate and drive this home if other members of the community, you know, white folks, Asians, everyone, all the other races don't step up to the plate, listen to what's being said, and act on it, what's going to end up happening is those other communities can continue to go on. They're going to continue living their life, but black people are going to keep dying, and this is going to keep happening. That's why this cycle keeps coming back up. That's why we continue to hear about it. Every other week, there is another egregious offense here. And frankly, everyone should be outraged that we don't all have an equal opportunity to the right to life. And that's just such a fundamental argument that uh, it, it's tough to argue against. And a lot of people want to take the argument and drill it down in semantics. Well, I'm not going to apologize for being white. That's fine. No one's asking you to. I'm asking you to use that to learn 
to grow and to act to help others. I'm not asking anyone to apologize for that. And a lot of these other things just get reduced down. At the end of the day, step out of your safe space. Listen to the people who are struggling, dying, having to deal with the racism that's been in place for 400 years and act and grow and support them. And once that's done, once we make some significant progress, this is going to be a better world and a better society and ultimately better sports for everyone. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I posted about this over the weekend. It, it is very easy. You can find excuses to not engage with it. There's a million of them out there. You can make it about, you know, damage being done in cities. And if you want to put all your focus on that, then it's a real easy way to not actually dive headlong into what this is actually, what these protests are, are about and what the message is, right? And, and the message is not about wanting to burn a city down that that has happened and no city's been burned down there has been there have been fires in cities there have been looting in cities yes it's happening that's not what it's about yeah and i mean i think you what you're describing raises a great point and for those of you that haven't seen this video from trevor noah um you know go check out trevor noah trevor noah's um, commentary about this but he he raises an excellent point i mean who are we to tell them how to protest the fact that they're being murdered on a daily basis at a far higher rate than any other race. Are we supposed to tell them how to protest? Um, you know, like I mentioned already, there have been peaceful protests that resulted in terrible outcomes for them regardless. You know, like I said, in the 60s, you had uh, fire hoses brought out. You had Selma Bloody Sunday. Uh, again, you have Colin Kaepernick's uh, kneeling protest that's met with fines, curse words, and ultimately being blackballed from the NFL. Who are we to tell them? How to protest, and, and ultimately the the looting, the stealing, the rioting. Uh, it's to, the reason you don't do that is to uphold this societal contract. But Trevor Noah's point in his video was, who's upholding the societal contract for the Black Americans in this country? Who is going out serving and protecting them? Who is going out and ensuring that they have equal opportunities uh, for the right to life? Who's going out and making sure that they are safe? And if society is not upholding the societal contract with black Americans, then why are they to uphold that in the manner by which they choose to protest? And so it's a great 18 minutes. It's well worth listening to. Uh, listen to it multiple times because, again, you may disagree initially, but again, it's not on us to, to tell them how to protest. But instead, we need to find ways to be better allies. Yeah. All right. Anything else on that topic, and then uh, or before we move into the show? No, uh, again, just just listen to all of it. You may not agree with it, but I'm more than happy to talk to you about it on on Twitter or DMs or however you want to engage. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we will get into the hockey now, and I think today uh, our plan was to talk quite a bit of draft. Uh, Corey Prodman's prospect rankings came out about a week ago. Scott Wheeler at the Athletic has came out just yesterday on Monday. So let's start there. Anything that really stood out to you in Scott or Corey's rankings, whether that be players who were ranked differently uh, from ranking to ranking, whether that's a player who's in a range you didn't expect him to be, or or guys who you think, based on where Scott and Corey have them, uh, could be intriguing fits for the Red Wings. Yeah, so I think I'll start with Corey's list first. I think, you know, for those of you that have listened to the show a lot, uh, you know by now that uh, my jaw dropped when I saw Marco Rossi at nine, uh, given how much I, I believe he's one of the best players in this draft. I think he ultimately could be 
the second best player in this draft. Uh, I think he's a slam dunk top five pick in my book. Um, but you know, Corey chose to rank him at nine and, and it's an interesting, uh, ranking. Again, it's hard to argue with it given that a lot of the guys in that three to nine bubble you could say are interchangeable. But, uh, frankly, it's a little bit surprising that he is all the way down there at nine behind guys like Askarov and, and Drysdale and, and even Alexander Holt. Um, you know, I'm not so sure that I would put him in that same tier, but I thought he was a name that was, you know, very surprising for me on Corey's list from, a guy that I thought was too low. And then as far as guys that I thought, uh, you know, Corey had quite on the high side, uh, Connor Zari is a guy who I think a lot of people have gone back and forth on. Uh, this was a down year for the WHL. It wasn't necessarily a strong year like it was last year where, you know, you had Peyton Krebs and uh, you had a lot of Kirby Doc, you had your Dylan Cousins, you had a lot of those guys that were going to be Bonafide top 10 picks until Krebs obviously tore his uh, Achilles. Um, but you didn't have the same talent level in the WHL this year. So seeing Connor Zari all the way up at 10, even ahead of guys like Seth Jarvis and Caden Gooley, who I think are arguably better than Zari. And, you know, some might even argue, uh, for a couple of other guys in the WHL to be ahead of them, like Braden Schneider or something like that. Um, so I thought it was very surprising to see Zari all the way at the top of 10 and kind of right in that next tier, uh, for me, at least on Corey's list. I thought the, uh, couple guys discrepancies that I noticed pretty wide, Noel Gundler, uh, we've talked about him on the show before, but you know, his, the rap on him, right. Is divisive. Uh, Scott's got him at 10. Corey's got him at 27. That is a huge range. Um, Sam Colangelo, Corey's got at 26. Scott, I don't even know if Scott had him in the first round. No, Scott uh, doesn't have him in the first round. I think he's all, he's far closer to the bottom, I believe. Scott's got him at 81. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's the third round. Um, that's a huge discrepancy there. So that's a player who's of, of, of big interest, a winger from the Chicago Steel. Um, I mean, for that Red Wings pick at 32, which I think is always, you know, that that's going to be one of the most interesting picks of the draft, just as really the only pick other than number one overall that gets a whole night of being on the clock. Like you can really nitpick that selection. You can really uh, think it every which way. It seems like there's going to be interesting players there. I, I, I think, you know, the idea of really getting a, a home run pick at the top of the second round is, is never a, a great bet, but at least some interesting names in that range, I mean, even from the 30 to 40, just from 30 to 40, Scott's got Lucas Reichel, Caden Gooley, uh, Braden Schneider, Brendan Brisson, Corey's got um, Ridley Grieg, Topi Nimala, who I know you think is one of the best defensemen in the draft. Ozzy Weisblatt is interesting. Emil Andre at 31. Like, that's a lot of names that if the Red Wings came out of, of the first pick of the second round with any of those guys, um, there'd be quite a bit to chew on. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Like, if you're looking at Corey's list and you're operating in that 30 to, to 40 list, I mean, uh, Emil Andre and, and Topi Nimela, I think, are arguably the third and fourth best uh, defensemen in the draft or, or close to it. Um, I think they're right there with Caden Gooley and, and uh, you know, Brend, uh, Braden Schneider and, and those other guys. Uh, so I think those are arguably two of the best defensemen in the draft that you might be able to pick in the early part of the the second round. And then, again, if you're picking off of, of Scott's list, um, you know, looking at guys from 30 to 40, I mean, he, who he's got at 30 is Jacob Perot. I mean, 
Jacob Perot had a monster year from a goal scoring standpoint. I mean, the guy is arguably one of the best snipers uh, in the draft. I think a real threat to score. Obviously, Lucas Reichel's in there as well. Um, another guy that I've really liked is uh, Brendan Brisson, who, while Scott has 40, I believe Corey has him at 14. So, again, I think a couple of things you're seeing here. Number one, scouting's a huge crapshoot. Just let that be known. When you're trying to rank these players, um, generating an actual list, a ranking list, is very difficult to do, and you're going to have wide fluctuations. I think you're much better off kind of following the system that both Scott and Corey do, which is put players in tiers. Now, by virtue, they're numbering the players within the tiers, but put players in tiers because I think that sort of tells you. But even then, there's still that much variance where you have a guy like Brendan Brisson who Corey believes is the 14th best player in the draft and a very good NHL prospect to, to Scott having him at 40th. So I think trying to pin down who's actually going to go where and who's going to be available is so difficult, which is why I think as an NHL team, you probably want to construct a a board of at least your top 50 or 60 players because you have no idea who's actually going to be around when you get to your picks if you're the Red Wings. For context, Scott has a tier that runs from player rank number 24 to number 53, and Corey has one that runs from number 25 to number 67. So that is a huge range. That tells you that those three second-round picks all should be coming from a group of players that are about the same caliber. Uh, and it also tells me that if the push comes to shove, uh, trading back into the first round doesn't seem like it's going to need to be uh, really particularly you know, enticing or much of a priority unless one of those players from really that top, I don't know, 15 or so players somehow falls and slips uh, late, late into the first um, that, that you're really in love with because it, when a tier stretches that far starting at 24, 25, um, seems like it would imply that just you just stand in and make your picks. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing. Um, you know, while you say stand in and make your picks, I actually think when you've got a tier that spans from 25 to 67 or or whatever it was, I think that ups the value of trading back because if you're telling me that, Again, the talent level of these players in this 42-player range is roughly equivalent. And you've got so many first-round picks up in the air this year. Uh, again, depending on how the NHL chooses to rule on on these first-round picks, you may have teams that don't have a first-round pick that are seeing Detroit pick at 32. Detroit's got the benefit of having overnight to make some deals. But you could have Detroit say, hey, you know what? You're desperate to take this guy at 32. Let me trade back, pull two more picks in that 25 to 67 range, and give me a couple more lotto balls to see if I can land, you know, a truly talented player. Because I think at the end of the day, what you're seeing by that kind of variance is that I don't know that anyone could sit there at 32 and say, this player is definitively better than all the other players that would be picked in the next 15 picks. And so that's why I think the value of if you've got a team that doesn't have a first round pick, that wants to jump up to 32 and is willing to give you a couple more picks in that 25 to 70 range, you absolutely make it because you give yourself some more shots at the lotto ball. The only pick you don't move is where what your first round pick is because you have to hit on one of those guys. Yeah, I think that's fair too. I, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're in love with somebody, then maybe, you know, maybe uh, you, you move up or stay put, but, you know, more kicks at the can when the tier is that long. 
Um, that is certainly a way that you can increase your odds of getting somebody to hit. And that is one of the main things the Red Wings still need in this rebuild is uh, they need someone who's not supposed to be a top prospect to turn into one. Uh, if, you, if you just rely on your top 10 picks becoming the players who are going to carry your team, it's going to take a long, long time. And maybe it will. Maybe it will anyway. They can help you out a lot if you can get someone in the second round, the third round. You know, Lightning got Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point in the second and third rounds. Um, that helps a lot. Yeah. I mean, and that's exactly – that's why Detroit has to be successful on their – first, second, and third round picks. And again, with the way these tiers are, and you can just, you know, I encourage everyone to go out, compare these two uh, lists and just see how vastly different they are. Uh, you know, Ridley Gregg, who's a guy in the WHL, who, again, I think there's been a lot of mixed opinions on how good he is. Corey's got him at 37. Scott's got him at 71. You give yourself another shot at picking in that range, you may be able to land this guy in the third round and get a much better value for him. Uh, you know, another guy that's all over the map for them, um, I think, is Emil Heineman, who's a guy that in some lists you've seen as high as first-round talent, and in some lists you've seen as low as in the 80s. And so, again, give yourself some more lotto balls. This is the whole point. But I think you nail your first-round pick. You try to get as many picks as possible in the second and third rounds to kind of round out the rest of that collection and then from there, you kind of let the draft play out. Yep, I would agree. All right, give me your one player ranked from 20 to 31 who you're sprinting to the podium for if he's there at 32 on either of these two lists. All right, so, you know, looking at uh, Corey's list, that's uh, J.J. Paterka, Jack Quinn, uh, Dylan Holloway, Braden Schneider, uh, Hendricks Lapierre, Lucas Reichel, Sam Colangelo, Noel Gundler, Merritt Hushnutinov, uh, Justin Barron, Vasily Ponomarayov, uh, and then Emil Andre. That's Corey's list. Scott's list has got Rodian Amaroff, Emil Andre, Jeremy Poir, Hendricks Lapierre, uh, Zion Nybeck, Lucas Cormier, Helga Granz, Kasper Simantoval, Roni Hervonen, Carter Savoy, Jacob Perot, and Lucas Reichel. Um, you know, on Scott's list of the guys that I see there, I think Rodian Amarov and Emil Andre are two big ones. I think Zion Nybeck's the third big one for me, that if those guys are there at 32, um, you know, I'm kind of inclined to maybe stay in my lane and pick. Uh, and then same on Corey's list. He's also got uh, Emil Andre there. I think he's a, a great defenseman um, who, again, gives you a lot of upside. Jack Quinn's a guy who I don't think is going to be there at – 31, but if you're getting a 50 goal scorer at 32, you know, you're, you're going to take a 50 goal scorer at 32, even though, you know, I've said my piece about him. He is still worth it at 32. Uh, I don't think he's worth it at 10, but 32 is very different. And then JJ Paterka is the other guy there that, yeah, you're absolutely sprinting if he's still there at, at 32. I think, uh, Amirov will be absolutely gone by then. And I think he'll actually be gone before 20. Um, I am not as in on Zion Nybeck as you, but I, uh, I certainly understand the, the, the interest. I, five, six and a half is a tough sell for me, although well, I guess it depends, it depends on, right. It depends on what measurement you're using because some people have them at five, six and a half and some people have them at five, eight. And I think this whole measurement stuff is, is fascinating. Not to derail this too much, but there's been a lot of controversy about how tall is Tim Stutzla. Uh, Central Scouting has him at six foot one. Adler Mannheim lists him at five foot eleven. That makes a difference. Two inches may not make a difference fundamentally, 
but the way he's going to be viewed at 5'11 is different than the way he's going to be viewed at 6'1". Uh, and so it's just fascinating how, how there's this game of measurements, and because we're not going to have an official combine, uh, you're probably not going to get an official measurement of the player. So it's just interesting to see how these players are able to maybe game their their measurements to a certain extent. That is true. I will say I am way less concerned about the difference between 6'1 and 5'11 than I am between 5'8 and 5'6. That's fair. I mean, that's fair. We don't have a lot of guys in the NHL at 5'6". Yeah. You know, that being said, your point stands like it, it is yeah. going to be one of the major, you know, we talk about the things that can be replaced in the scouting process, the draft, the draft uh, prep process by not having a combine and not having some of these international tournaments. You know, you can still get a good idea of a player Skyping him or whatever, Zoom conference, whatever. Like you can still learn something about a player that way. Um, but those things like the combine measurements where everyone's on board with this is how tall a player is. Uh, man, that is, that is actually a decent one. And, and I know the idea of incorporating size in your drafts. I know that push, that gets a lot of pushback. It, size does matter. It, it is, it is, should not be your primary reason for drafting someone, but I think it can give you pause one direction or the other. And that includes players who are simply almost too tall. You know, like I don't know that I want a six foot nine player on my team, like, not every guy that big is going to be able to have a Zdeno Chark or very few will. There's not very many guys like that either. Uh, and it can get hard to move. It can get hard to be that coordinated at that size. So it goes both directions. This is not a, I'm not uh hating on the short Kings out there. But. I, mean, I, I will say, I think the, the size argument often gets construed as a height argument. Yes. And I think that misses the element of how a player is constructed. And you and, yes, you and I, I have had this conversation yeah. about Marco Rossi and that he's five foot nine, but he's, He's 183 pounds. Well, Zion Nybeck, call him five foot six. He's still listed at 183 pounds. The guy's the same weight as Jake Sanderson. Okay. And so it's he, he's a built smaller guy, and that's where I think the difference is. There's a difference between Otto Kevin Mackey, five foot seven, 143 pounds, and Zion Nybeck, five foot seven, 183 pounds. Uh, and I think there's a difference in those players, and that's why. At least I know some of the people who like to experiment with uh, draft analytics have started looking at things like BMI or body surface area as potential surrogates uh, for predicting outcomes as opposed to just height and weight separately. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I that's a very good point. Very well made about, uh, you know, especially if, if he's if he's built that way, then maybe that, that does quell some concerns. My guy in that range might be Lucas Reichel. I mean, Paterka certainly, I think he's kind of, Generally thought to be the player who's going to go first, but I, I watched a little bit of video on Reichel over this last weekend and I'm, I'm pretty intrigued there and not just because it would be very fun to write some stories about the Red Wings, uh, German pipeline. I, I, he looks like a really interesting player. Yeah. I mean, Reichel and Paterka, I think as we start to investigate the DEO and learn a little bit more about them, uh, I think they're both dynamic players. And I've heard a lot of scouts almost refer to them as polar opposites in the sense that what Paterka does well, Reichel doesn't. But what Reichel does well, Paterka doesn't. And so, honestly, the perfect hybrid is is, is a both both of those guys combined into one player. But that being said, I think you're going to get fantastic players in both of them uh, where you select them. And, and I think, ultimately, they're, they're both outstanding wingers that are going to be able to add a lot to any team, uh, you know, as early as one to two years from now. Yeah, and, you know, but I just think, like, you know, 
Corey's got a, a 60 on Reichel's hockey sense, 60 on his skill. That to me is the kinds of player who, if, if I'm the Red Wings, I'm looking to add to, to this team because you need, you know, at, at the, you're not going to get someone who has everything at, at the top of the second round. Those guys are gone by the end of the top 10. But if you're going to get somebody who has really good smarts, which you know you need, really good skill, which is going to be essential uh, for the Red Wings because they are short on it. I mean, Philip Tadine is very skilled. Uh, but, you know, Dylan Larkin, obviously a, a skilled player. Mantha's got some skill, but but he he does a lot of his work with his sense and his shot. Bertuzzi does a lot of his work with really good instinct, really good compete, a pretty good shot. Um, in that top six to top nine, the smart skill guy is what they are going to need. So I think uh, I Reichel, I think, would be my guy in that range where you're, you're sprinting to the podium if he's there. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I, I completely agree in that you you don't think the complete player is going to be there. But no, if we just flip back to last year's draft, right? Arthur Kaliev, a 50 goal scorer in the OHL, is there at 33. Bobby Brink, who had an outstanding career in the USDP short. But would I you say either of those guys is the complete player with no question? I'd say Kaliev. I, I mean, Kaliev was a top 10 player for me. Kaliev okay. was a top 10 talent that slipped to 33. And that was just crazy. Even Nils Hoglander was a top 20 guy for a lot of people and he goes 40. And so I think it's, it's fascinating. We say we don't think you're going to have top talent slip, but I mean, last year you did and you had top talent slip in a big way. And so that's why it's so hard to predict and project who's actually going to be available there. Um, because for a lot of people, you just, you have no idea who's going to drop on draft day. Yeah. Okay. Another interesting tip that Corey had uh, on Reichel just before we move on. Uh, he has not taken a penalty in junior club play since two years ago. I mean, that is impressive. It's almost Nick Lidstrom levels of impressive. I wonder how that can possibly be. I don't know. I'd have to double back on his stats to to confirm that that is a a true story. He had zero penalty minutes in the DEL this year in 42 games and only four penalty minutes uh, in the under-20 German league in 2018-19. Like, that's two penalties. That's crazy. That's crazy discipline. Yeah, I mean, that's that's discipline or that's uh, unwillingness to engage. How do you want to interpret that? Well, Corey says... uh, the last time he recorded a penalty was two seasons ago in junior club play, but I don't think he's soft. I've seen him be hard on his puck pursuits, drive the net frequently, and win battles versus bigger players. But it would be fair to say he's not a very physical or edgy player. There you go. All right. So, I, And I think that ultimately comes down to how you interpret some of the scouting stuff. Without watching these guys a lot, you know, you could interpret zero penalty minutes as, wow, that player is really disciplined, or, wow, that player does not get involved whatsoever. So all the perils of scouting, I think. A very good point. That is very much something that uh, you should be careful not to read necessarily uh, all positively. I think that's a good point. Yeah, it's all, and ultimately scouting is a crapshoot. That's what you're seeing here. You've got guys with a variance of 50 spots between two guys who have been doing this for several years. So, you know, we'll see who's available on, on day two, and, and you'll have to go from there. But I think as a team, you want to make sure the Red Wings are prepared. They've got a full board of guys that, you know, at least 50 or 60 guys, and, and they're ready to make uh, picks and deals as they come because if you find multiple guys that you like falling and slipping, that's when you need to be trading back. Yeah, yeah. All right, anything else on the draft before we uh, wrap it up for the day? Let's, uh, let's wrap it up. 
All right. So that will do it for us then. Stay safe and take care.